Thank you, Ben, for reading our scripture. We're going to be looking at Amos chapter 8, and we'll actually be looking at several different chapters in the book of Amos. I said this morning that we'd be talking about the book of Hosea. I have absolutely no idea why I said that. <laughs> Maybe it's an age thing. But I intended to say we'd be, we would be talking about the book of Amos. And so we intend to do that tonight as we contemplate the theme, the worst kind of famine imaginable. And before we get started, we do want to take this opportunity to welcome all of you here tonight. We're grateful for your presence. We're very thankful for those that have chosen to be back. We have visitors with us. As always, we invite you to come back and be with us. We're grateful for the number of visitors that come our way each week, and we hope that you find our services here helpful and beneficial, and we hope and pray that you'll want to return. Tonight we're going to be looking, as I mentioned a moment ago, at the book of Amos. I have some things that I want to read for you tonight by way of introduction to our lesson. This past week I came across an interesting article. The article was originally published by Apologetics Press, and the article goes back to 2004. And I missed this particular event, and I wish now that I had not missed it, historically speaking. On Thursday, February the 12th, in 2004, a United States Senator from Georgia, Zell Miller, who was a Democrat, he is retired by now, and you can read his speech on the Senate floor on virtueonline.org, and I would encourage you to go and to read what he said that day in its entirety. But he stood before the Senate on this day. He delivered a 12-minute speech, and really in a very concise way, dealt with the moral decline of our country. And what really got my attention, he quoted from the prophet Amos in chapter 8, in verses 11 and 12, where Amos said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I'll send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. In his presentation before the Senate, he quoted a renowned historian by, by the name of Arnold Toynbee. Toynbee died in 1975, but he made this observation. Of the 22 civilizations that have appeared in history, 19 of them collapsed when they reached the moral state America is in today. He cited some of the problems that America is facing at large. From the home, to rap music, to the fact that God is being removed from schools, courthouses, and city squares. And then, listen if you would to his conclusion. 
So if I'm asked today why with all the pressing problems this nation faces, why am I pushing these social issues and taking the Senate's valuable time? I will answer, because it is of the highest importance. Yes, there's a deficit to be concerned about in this country. In 2004, our federal debt was $7.3 trillion. Today it stands at $18 trillion. It is estimated that by 2019, it will be $21 trillion. But Miller said, there is a deficit to be concerned about in this country. But listen to what he said. A deficit of decency. He nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. And then he made these remarks in closing. So as the sand, of, so as the sand empties through my hourglass at warp speed, and with my time running out in this Senate and on this earth, I feel compelled to speak out. For I truly believe that at times like this, silence is not golden. It is yellow. Only a coward would shy away from stating the facts as they are so prevalent in our country. There is a deficit. I know that monetarily speaking, we are upside down in debt. And the bottom line is, at some point in time, there'll be a payday. But more so, there is a spiritual deficit in our country. It is a deficit of decency, as Senator Miller pointed out. So with that in mind, I want to call attention to the great prophet, Amos. And in our study tonight, I want to begin by talking about the fact that when this man began prophesying, there was an imminent crisis. Now we might ask the question, what was the peril that stood before God's people in about 755 B.C., the peril was, as stated by Amos, there would be a famine in the land. I want to begin by, first of all, talking about the source of the crisis. Amos was from a small town just south of Jerusalem, a little town by the name of Tekoa. Amos was a country preacher, really just a herdsman, a tender of sycamore trees. And yet God used this man in a very mighty way during the days of Jeroboam II. And God in the long ago thundered about what he would do to the northern kingdom of Israel. In chapter 3, in verse 2, Listen to what God said. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. It's important to note that God would punish them 
because of their manifold iniquities. In chapter 5 at verse 12, Amos said, speaking on behalf of God, I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. I think sometimes people have the idea that they can just do as they please and God doesn't take notice. That's false. God knows all and God sees all. Solomon said, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good in Proverbs chapter 15. The Hebrew writer said, neither is there any creature that is not made manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knows all and God sees all. So there was a source to the crisis that was at hand. And note if you would now in chapter 8 at verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God. God is the one that's going to be bringing this crisis upon his people. He said, I'll send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Interestingly, when Malachi laid aside the pen of inspiration, there was a 400-year period where God did not speak through men that we call the prophets until John the Baptist began his preaching in the wilderness of Judea, calling on men and women to repent for the kingdom of heaven, as he, as he said, is at hand. Now, the severity of this crisis, as Amos points out, it's not a famine involving bodily sustenance. Can you imagine living in a country that has been blighted by famine? There are people in third world countries that have just a scant of food to eat. The water, very difficult to come by. And yet, when we look at this famine, it involves biblical substance. You know, in Revelation chapter 20, there's an interesting statement made by John, and I know that chapter 20 is highly figurative, and many times people want to literalize Revelation chapter 20. But in that chapter, John talks about the binding and loosing of Satan. I want to suggest to you today that Satan is bound when God's Word is preached and taught. Satan is loosed when the Word of God is muzzled. When God's word is not being proclaimed from the housetops, so to speak. And so here's a famine that's going to sweep the land. It was indeed an imminent crisis. But I want you to see in the second place that there were some identifying causes. Now somebody might ask the question, why would they be encountering problems? After all, during the days of Jeroboam, as one writer said, the borders were bulging. Business was booming. It was a time of prosperity. And yet the problem was one of spiritual decay. The northern kingdom would ultimately be taken into captivity. The Assyrians would come 
and carry them away into captivity in about 722 B.C., and they would never again return. And so there are two basic reasons why God made this prophecy. First, if you read the book of Amos, you'll find out that the people despised the word of God. When I think about people despising the word of God, there are really two subpoints here. First of all, they didn't like the message. And secondly, they didn't like the messenger. And the two go hand in hand. Let me just call attention to a couple of passages. Go back and look at chapter 2. In verse 12, God said, I gave the Nazarite, or rather he said, you gave the Nazarites wine to drink. And the Nazarites depicted or demonstrated holiness to God. And then he said, and you commanded the prophets saying, do not prophesy. They didn't want to hear the word of God. God sent the prophets in an effort to help the people, to bring them back. And yet, unfortunately, they refused. And then look at chapter 5. In chapter 5 at verse 10, Amos writes, They hate the one who rebukes in the gate, and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. It's amazing to me that we live in a day and time in this country when if you stand up for moral purity and righteous living, you're castigated. They'll denigrate your name. They'll take you to the woodshed. Amos here is saying that the people did not like those who spoke uprightly. Is it not the case that that's, that's the case here in America? Isn't it amazing that Christianity as we know it and the Bible have become the proverbial whipping post? Think about how many people ridicule and mock the God of heaven and the word of God. And then turn over to chapter 7. In chapter 7, Amos writes about Amaziah the prophet, or rather Amaziah the priest. Amaziah was the priest of Bethel. Some would say that he was functioning as a high priest. He wasn't a true high priest, he was an imposter. You remember Jeroboam I, the son of Nebat, when the kingdom divided. The Bible tells us in 1 Kings chapter 12, that Jeroboam set up two golden calves, one in Dan to the north and the other in Bethel to the south. He ordained priest, pagan priest. So here is Amaziah the priest. And he sends to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amaziah has conspired, or rather Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. Now note, the land is not able to bear or to endure his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. Now note what Amaziah says to Amos. Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah, there eat bread, and there prophesy, 
and never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, it is the royal residence. You know what Amaziah was saying? We don't want God's word being preached here. We don't want to hear anything you have to say about the God of heaven. May I say that there are places in this country where people do not want to hear God's word. They don't want to hear what God has to say. And there are many people that have done their very best to circumvent the teaching of Almighty God. There are those that have tried to rewrite, for example, what constitutes marriage. They've cut it out of their Bible. But here's the bottom line. Whether we like what God has to say in His Word or not, the Word of God is always right. It's right. We may not like it, and folks may not want to hear it, and they may not appreciate the messenger, but it's right. It will always be right. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. There was a fellow in the long ago by the name of Jehoiakim, and he took a scribe's knife, a pen knife, according to Jeremiah. He didn't like what was said. And so as a result of that, you know what he tried to do? Tried to cut God's word out. That's what he did. Now, there may be people today who physically do not take a pair of scissors and cut out portions of the word of God that they don't like. But listen, we can do it figuratively. We just say, I don't believe that. I don't want to honor that. I don't want to live according to those precepts. So it's a difficult time. So the people despised the word of God. And then secondly, they were disobedient to the word of God. I mentioned a moment ago the fact that these folks were spiritually bankrupt. Now you can ask the question, how in the world... Could the nation of Israel been spiritually bankrupt? I thought God gave them his law. He did. I thought God entered into a covenant relationship with them back in Exodus chapter 19. He did. That covenant, however, was conditional, predicated on their willingness to honor the commands of God. As a matter of fact, when Moses relayed the covenant to the children of Israel after they had left the land of Egypt, Their response in Exodus chapter 19 was, all that the Lord has said, that will we do. They said they would honor the word of God, but they dishonored the word of God time and again. And when you look at the history of Israel, it is a history, it is a cycle of belief and unbelief, faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And so when Amos writes, The northern kingdom is about to be taken into captivity. The southern southern kingdom of Judah would later go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. God spared a remnant of Judah. Why? To bring the Christ into the world. The southern kingdom fulfilled that responsibility 
Jesus Christ came into the world, lived, later crucified on Calvary, rose from the dead the third day, ascended to heaven, Judaism been put down. Christianity is now, has now been invoked. But nonetheless, consider if you would the disobedience of these people. They were, as I mentioned a moment ago, spiritually bankrupt. Is it not the case that in our country today, we're living among people who are spiritually bankrupt? And lest we get to thinking we're just talking about the world, there are folks in the church that are spiritually bankrupt. I can tell you they're spiritually bankrupt because a lot of them haven't come back tonight. And there were a lot of them that weren't here this morning. I don't know where they were, but they weren't here. Maybe some were traveling. Maybe some were sick. Maybe some had to work. Maybe the rain got some. I don't know. But I know this. There are a lot of people in the Lord's church that are bankrupt spiritually and need a revival, just as ancient Israel needed a revival. Go back and look at some of the problems cataloged by Amos. One of the real problems that beset the children of Israel, greed and oppression. In chapter 2, in verse 6, Amos speaks of those who sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. I want to challenge you this week to read, for example, the book of Proverbs. And look at the emphasis that God places on caring for the poor. Those who oppress the poor, those who take advantage of the poor, will one day stand before Almighty God. They reproach, as Solomon said, their maker. So they were greedy. They were oppressive. The old saying, might makes right. We are living in an extremely greedy age. It's all about what we have and what we can accumulate. Seems to me that maybe our values are misplaced. Jesus said, beware and take heed of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things he possesses. In our world today, you're considered somebody on the basis of what you have and who you are and your status, socially speaking. Let me tell you what God's concerned about your heart. God's concerned about how you're living. That's what impresses Him. Greed and materialism have wrecked havoc in our country. Somebody said on one occasion that we do better in adversity than prosperity. I think there's a lot of truth to that. You can go back and you can look at World War I, World War II. Those devastating wars, particularly World War II, some have called it the greatest generation. People banded together. There was there was a sense of reverence and awe for the God of heaven, for the Bible. 
And since that age, we've grown fat and prosperous in this country. And sadly, we have forgotten where many of our blessings have come from Jehovah God. Another problem that they faced, immorality. Note, if you would, what is said in verse 7. In verse 7, they pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor. They pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. It's amazing. The sexual promiscuity that is so rampant in our country. I'm not so naive to think that sexual promiscuity is not alive and well in the church because it is. I want to encourage our young people to remain sexually pure. To understand that God in heaven places a premium on sexual purity. The words of the Hebrew writer are still true. The marriage bed is undefiled. But now listen to what he said. Fornicators and adulterers. God said, I will judge. There are a lot of folks in our world today, they're shacking up, they're living together. Without the benefits of marriage, they're living in sin. Can I just be honest with you? They're living in sin. If you're living with somebody and you're not married and you're engaging in sexual relations, you're living in fornication. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that fornicators shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Just that simple. Do people want to hear that in our world? No. Young folks don't want to hear it. Sometimes old folks don't want to hear it, but that's what the truth says. And then materialism. I mentioned greed and oppression. Turn over to chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 1, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria. Drop down and look at verse, look if you would, at verse 4. He speaks of those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch out on their couches and they eat lambs and the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who chant to the sound of the stringed instruments and invent for themselves musical instruments like David who drink wine from bowls and anoint themselves with the best ointments but he said they're not grieved for the affliction of Joseph these people were living as we would say high on the hall Life was good. Isn't it the case that Satan can instill within us a false sense of security? I mean, life is good. Business is booming. We've got all the land we need. We've got a good job. Our family's well. Our health is good. Everything seems to be going A-OK in life. There's something missing. What is that something? It's God. These people, externally speaking, they had everything. But internally, they had nothing. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon talks about the accumulation of things in life to the exclusion of God in life. He said that vacuum will not be filled by things. The only thing that can fill that vacuum is Almighty God. 
And then turn over, if you would, to chapter 8. In chapter 8, in verse 5, Amos deals with what I would call empty ritualism. And the idea is, here are people just going through the motions. Listen to what he says. Listen, if you would, to the mentality of the people of that day. When will the new moon be passed, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may trade our wheat? God said in the law that they were to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. The intent of God regarding the Sabbath was that it would be a day in the week when his people could step back from the rush of life and reflect upon their maker. In other words, the idea was that they could focus on spiritual things rather than just the material and the mundane things of life. And yet their attitude was, look, we want the Sabbath day to hurry up and get over with so we can get back to business. We've got to get back to business as usual. I remember when I was just a boy growing up in Chattanooga. When I was just a little fella, there were no stores open on Sunday. Oh, there were 7-Elevens, little quick stops. If you needed a gallon of milk or loaf of bread or something, you could run there and get what you needed. I'm talking about the grocery stores, the big grocery stores, the, the chains. They were closed. Department stores, closed. Nothing was open. And then they began to loosen up. I remember, I guess it was in the 70s, the grocery store started opening at 1 o'clock. They'd, they'd stay open from maybe 1 to 6, followed by the department stores. Jettisoning, jettisoning forward in time, 2015, Sunday, business as usual. No different than any other day of the week. Now, I know that Sunday's not the Sabbath day. We're not under the Sabbath. But Sunday is the Lord's day. And there are a lot of folks in the church that just go through the motions. That's what these people were doing. Just going through the motions. We've got to go in and punch our time card, observe the Sabbath, and then get back to business. The mentality of the day, come in, punch our time card, worship for an hour, at least we're here bodily, and then we leave and go about our merry ways. We may come back, we may not. We may live for God, we may not. These people were empty spiritually. I mean, they were completely bankrupt. And then dishonesty. Note what Amos says. He said they make the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the balances by deceit. The scales, the weights, they'd tamper with them to their advantage. Why? To take advantage of people. To get the best of them. Unscrupulous deceitful, untrustworthy. And let me tell you why they did this. Look again at verse 6. That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Even sell 
the bad wheat. A lot of problems in the northern kingdom. A lot of problems in our world today. A lot of problems in America. In many respects, we mirror some of these characteristics. Thirdly, there were inevitable consequences. Let's talk about their punishment for a minute. Go back with me, if you would, to chapter 4. In chapter 4, Amos talks about Israel's calloused behavior. The Bible tells us that God chastens those whom he loves. When God chastened the children of Israel, the intent was to bring them to their senses. In chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, God talks about some of the things that he did in an effort to touch their human cords, to touch their heart. Look at verse 6. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Verse 7, I withheld, I withheld rain from you. When there were still three months to the harvest, I made it rain on one city, withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Now listen, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Five times in chapter 4, Amos talks about the chastening hand of Almighty God, and then every time he sums it up by saying, yet you have not returned to me. Only a fool would despise the goodness and forbearance of Almighty God. As Paul said, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance. These people weren't interested in repentance. And so as a result of that, a burden was coming, judgment. Look at verse 12 in chapter 4. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, and because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Could I just say this? You don't want to meet God unprepared. You don't want to. What God was saying here is, judgment's coming. He was coming to judge them. He was going to use the Assyrians to take them into captivity. And so he said, prepare to meet your God. There are a lot of people in our world today, and they are not ready to meet their God. And we can turn our, we can turn our head, we can turn our nose up at him, and we can act as if we don't need him in our lives, but the bottom line is this, we do need him. And one day God is going to hold us accountable for how we live. And then turn over, if you would, to chapter 6. In chapter 6, listen to what Amos said on behalf of God. But behold, I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, says the Lord God of hosts. And they will do what? They will afflict you. Who's in control? Who's in control? The president? The Senate? The Congress? The governor? Who's in control? Was King Jeroboam in control? Was he really running the ship? 
he wasn't in control. He didn't have nearly the power he thought he had. God said, look, I'm coming to judge you. Sometimes we use the expression that so-and-so cleaned somebody's clock. Here's what God was saying to the children of Israel. I'm going to clean your clock. He meant it. And he did it. Let me tell you who's in control. God is. The most high rules and the kingdoms of men. I do not have any idea what the future holds for our country. But I know this. We are a country because of the providential blessings of a loving God in heaven. If God were to take away his benevolent hand, where would we be? I'll tell you where we would be. We would be history. I mentioned this morning that we are not a theocracy. We are a republic, a democratic nation. And we, we've been blessed immensely. But please hear me as a nation. I'd say this to the President, to the Senate, to the House, to every political leader across this land. We better not trifle with God. We better not get too big for our britches and think that we're all powerful and almighty. I know militarily speaking, we're loaded for bear. But that means nothing to God. It may be that this country will survive thousands of years. I don't know. But I know this. We're in a heap of trouble. And the answer is the gospel. That's the answer. People don't know it, but that's the answer. I mentioned this morning my friend John Shannon. He asked his congregation to pray for him that he would have the opportunity to go to the White House and preach to Obama. I hope he has that opportunity. I hope and pray he does. I hope and pray that we can get a gospel preacher before our Senate and before our Congress, before our President. I would love to see a gospel preacher stand up in Washington on the house floor and just read God's word. We need it. The psalmist said, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my pathway. Without God's word, we're toast. With it, we're blessed. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for this day, for the blessings that we enjoy. We're thankful for our country, for the freedoms that we enjoy, for our prosperity, for our, for our food, clothing, shelter, our jobs, for all the blessings that we enjoy, our health care, our transportation, our communication. We pray that we will not take these blessings for granted. We're grateful that we can read and study your word, that we can preach and teach publicly. And we pray that we might continue to be able to do so. And we pray for the leaders of our country that they would recognize the need to put you first in their lives. 
to live according to your precepts. Bless us and be with us. Forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to come to Christ, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, to be willing to repent of your sins, confess His name before others, to be immersed in water, just like they did on Pentecost Day. If you'll do that, the Bible tells, tells us all that you'll enjoy the remission of your sins, Acts 2.38. God will put you in the church, Acts 2.47. If you'll be faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. If you need to come home as an erring child of God, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you as we stand and sing.